Hello, dear listeners. Welcome back to another exciting episode of our podcast. I've got something special for you today. This episode was captured live in front of our vibrant NeuroAcademy online community. And in this episode, Dean and I presented a slide deck to the community and gave them an updated summary of the pivotal role that lifestyle changes play in preventing Alzheimer's disease. It's a topic that touches many lives and holds the promise of a better future for countless of families around the world. And stay with us to the end because we fielded some really interesting questions from our community members that you won't want to miss. Now, let me tell you a little bit about NeuroAcademy. NeuroAcademy is an online community of over 500 lovely people that offers an array of on-demand courses covering a wide range of topics related to brain health. Whether you're interested in nutrition, exercise, building resilience, or the intricate connections between lifestyle choices and cognitive well-being, there's something to cater to every curiosity. You're able to get certification as well as a request for CE or CME credits. In addition to the courses, we have live Q&A sessions every Monday where you can directly interact with us and have your burning questions answered. On Fridays, we have live cooking sessions where you can learn delicious and brain-boosting recipes from the comfort of your own kitchen. If you enjoy culinary adventures, we also have a neuro cooking club where you can connect with like-minded members who share a passion for brain-healthy cuisine. And that's not all. We have several other exciting clubs as well. The Neuro Book Club, the Exercise Club, the Gardening Club, the Science Club, and so much more. We get incredible feedback from our community and we find it so gratifying to be able to learn about the latest evidence-based science of brain health together and also be the best versions of who we are or who we can be at the end of the day. If you're interested to join us, please check out neuroacademy.com to learn more. Thank you so much for joining us today. We talked about the profound influence of lifestyle on brain health, and we presented the science um, on the lifestyle and brain health and longevity. As a heads up, uh, you're the first to know. The next book is going to be about... Um, uh, the title's not set, but almost like ageless brain, the, the, this incredible brain. This three-pound organ, 2% uh, of body's weight that consumes 25% of the body's energy. But most importantly, it continues to grow. The, not so much as far as cells are concerned, although now we know that there are some cells that regenerate even late in life. But as far as the most important types of growth, which is the connections in between neurons, and within the last few years, even, we have learned the true extent to which these neurons make connections. Uh, we, we, we have always quoted 30,000 connections per neurons, but actually they found cells that connect as many as 50,000 times. Imagine that power. Imagine that connectivity. And, and it happens at any age, at any time. And that's our power. That's our superpower to expand our cognitive capacity. So um, with that, we, this is the dilemma that we need to um, um, face, which is the curve uh, that, that dec starts declining at age 20 or so. Around age 20, where the myelination is fairly complete, the myelination of the connections between neurons, we start losing cells, but more importantly, also start damaging the brain. Most, most average human and definitely most uh, the average person in the West that starts damaging their brain because of lifestyle factors. 
food, lack of exercise, lack of cognitive activity, stress in others. Whereas we now know that the brain can maintain its capacity, can actually even grow well into your 70s, 80s, and beyond. Um, and there's not much that the brain can't do that it could do before. In fact, I would go as far as to say that if one is able to avert dementia and cognitive decline, your very cognitive capacity, your very consciousness it actually expands as you grow older. Because consciousness is a function of your experiences, the language and stories that you've created in your mind, and how interconnected they are. So uh, it might be a little bit controversial, but I would say that our consciousness, our very consciousness expands as we grow older if we avert the, the damage and disease that usually is seen. Um, examples are Jane Goodall, Dr. Warham, Elias Pauling, many, many, many others. Yeah, and we see these more and more now, especially uh, that people are living longer. Dr. Warham as a, was a neurologist, uh, sorry, a, a cardiothoracic surgeon in Loma Linda, at Loma Linda and he did open to close surgeries up to age 95. And at that point, he retired uh, and was as active as always. And even during his surgery up to age 95, he was not one of those surgeons that would stand behind uh, uh, some uh, uh, other doctor or some nurse practitioner where they did the work. He would do the surgery. From 95 to 104, he was very active. And at the very end, he, um, he passed away quietly in his own terms in his own home. So that's the goal for most of us, and even pushing the, the, the years past 104 and beyond. But most importantly, healthfully and with the full cognitive capacity. The dilemma is dementia. It's the fastest growing epidemic. It's number one in US and, and UK and, and Japan, and it will be number one in US. And it affects different populations differently. Dementia is the umbrella category, but the subtypes of dementia are Alzheimer's, which is the main type, 60 to 80%. Lewy body disease, vascular dementia, uh, frontotemporal lobe dementia, Parkinson's dementia, Huntington's dementia, progressive supranuclear palsy, multisystem atrophy, and on and on and on and on. But Alzheimer's is the biggest category. Each of these have distinct features and distinct processes. Uh, all of them are affected by lifestyle, some more uh, uh, so than others, and others are very dominantly driven by genetics, like Huntington's disease. Differences. Um, uh, after the age of 65, about uh, one in nine in, uh, individuals uh, suffer from Alzheimer's and, and even uh, more so about dementia. And, the and this number is expected to rise. Like I said, it will be the number one cause of mortality and morbidity in the U.S. within this decade. And, and already it's um, taking over many, many countries in Europe. Cost is absolutely um, uh, un uh, unbelievable. The second costly disease is heart disease at 120 billion. Uh, Alzheimer's direct cost 345 billion, indirect cost 340 billion. And this number is expected to go to nearly 3 trillion, direct and indirect combined by 2040, 2050, which is going to be beyond our capacity to, to, to deal with. Um, differences in gender, women are at much higher risk of dementia than, than, than men. And um, certain populations, such as African-Americans and Hispanics, are at much greater risk as well. And in both cases, it, uh, we believe uh, that it's not genetic and it's more environmental and lifestyle variables that have contributed to the increased risk. In fact, we, we know that the, the, the very factors that contribute to those, and, and here's a clue, food is a major part of it, at least 
um, um, uh, westernized food and, as the, uh, and at least the fast food world that we live in. Myths that it cannot be prevented. We've, uh, I think we've had a good hand in bending that arc uh, towards the truth. And, and, and we were the, one of the first people that said it could be prevented. And now almost everybody accepts it. And just the percentage is arguable. Yes. Some people say 40% can be prevented. Others say 60%. We actually say under the optimal conditions, the, the operative term is here, optimal, are starting earlier, um, fully um, uh, eating healthy, active, mentally uh, active, uh, stress-free, uh, beautiful sleep patterns, and mental activity, as much as 90% can be prevented. Second myth is that it's, it's genetic. Um, and it's, it's not genetic because um, uh, we know that the genetic picture is very clear now to us. Uh, the percentage of Alzheimer's that is driven 100% by genes is 3 to 5% driven by those three genes, APP, presenilin-1, and presenilin-2. The rest of the genes are more of a risk factor genes, APOE4 being the second highest prevalence or a penetrant gene, meaning that the one with the second highest risk. If you have one gene from one parent, the risk goes up three to four times. If you have two genes, one from each parent, it's 12, as much as 12 times. Uh, but yet 50% of people who have two genes don't develop dementia. And why? Again, lifestyle and, and environment. The other genes all have to do with lifestyle variables such as glucose metabolism, lipid metabolism, waste disposal, immune response, and, and they have much less influence, but they still have influence. But it's at the interface of those states that we have effect on, we have influence on. So as you can see, much of this has to do with epigenetics that are driven by environmental and, and lifestyle variables more than anything else. There will be one medication. Nope. Even with these new drugs that have been shown to slow down the disease, it's just that. May, it may slow down the disease, but it will not uh, uh, alter um, the course to the extent that you can say this drug is going to eliminate the disease uh, because it's multivariate. It's multiple variables that are involved. So we really think that um, we should continue doing research as far as slowing down the disease or, or multiple drugs that can together influence. But more importantly, starting early enough to affect the factors that affect the risk. Absolutely. And that's more likely to have a significant influence. The last one is that dementias, all of them start with forgetfulness. Not so. Forgetfulness is, is uh, at the point at the tip where people actually see the symptoms. Uh, but the disease has started 10, 15, 20 years earlier, if not more. And it had to do with everything that we did at that point. That's why it's very difficult to tell, get a 20-year-old to believe that what they eat and what they do and the way they sleep and how much they drink will have an effect long-term because they don't see it at that point. They have what's called cognitive reserve, a bank account they can draw from until they see something. But where they will see something is when the bank account starts running out and that's usually in the 50s and, and 60s. But the disease process has started earlier. So it's critical that we get this message out that the sooner you start, the better. But here's the thing. At any stage of life, if you start, you can affect the curve. Absolutely. So that's the key. Um, risk factors. So as far as the risk factors go, there's plenty of evidence and information for us to know what is uh, modifiable and can reduce the risk of dementia. There are certain risk factors that are out of our control. The most important one is age. Our risk of dementia increases as we age. 
sometimes when people have family history of early dementia, their, their risk increases. We spoke about ApoE4 gene and how that affects lipid metabolism and could increase the risk for uh, dementia. And in women, especially during menopause, because of the ch hormonal changes, it puts them at a high risk for developing dementia. So those are the things that we need to work with because they're essentially, you know, to, to, to a certain extent out of our control. But the things that are under our control, thankfully, that list is quite long. Things like our LDL cholesterol, diabetes or prediabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, lack of exercise, unhealthy diet, being isolated socially, drinking alcohol, smoking, having sleep disorders, and hearing loss are some of the prominent factors. Um, and there are dozens of large population studies and hundreds of papers that have shown that when people adhere to a healthy lifestyle, they can prevent or slow down the progression of memory uh, and dementia as well as some vascular diseases of the brain, such as stroke. And here in NeuroAcademy, we have mentioned that over and over again, and we've uh, actually discussed multiple papers that have shown um, this, uh, the strength of this evidence for prevention. Uh, we've made a list of you know, some of the largest cohort studies that have pointed towards prevention of dementia. I'm not going to go through each and every one of them, but these are massive studies and coming from multiple lines of research. So, you know, these are observational studies. These are case control studies. These are randomized control trials. And most of them are, have been repeated and validated and they use tools that have been validated in larger populations. We have studies like the Mind Diet study from Russian University, the Framingham Heart Study, which is the largest and the longest study in the world the Women's Health Initiative from Harvard, Women's Health Study, the Adventist Health Study from Loma Linda University, the Cognitive Function and Aging Studies, et cetera. All of these have proven to us time and time again that when people live a healthy lifestyle, they can prevent devastating diseases like Alzheimer's and other dementias. Uh, this is an example of, uh, of a research study that was done, uh, conducted in Rush University. So what they did was they took a pool of people who had genetic risk for dementia and they found out that their, their chance of developing dementia later on in life was 60% higher compared to those who didn't have those genes. However, if the same population had the genes as well as lived an unhealthy lifestyle, their risk of developing dementia went up to 360%. That's the profound effect that unhealthy lifestyle has on top of bad genes. But doing some analysis, they found out that when those individuals who already had the genes, if they lived a healthy lifestyle, they reduced their risk of developing dementia to less than 30%, which is incredible. Yeah. And that points to the fact that adherence to a healthy lifestyle can offset genetic risk. And we have several other wonderful papers. This paper, Healthy Lifestyle and the Risk of Alzheimer's Dementia, was conducted at Rush Memory and Aging Project. They looked at about 3,000 people, followed for six years. And the scientists created a dementia risk score. So they looked at mind diet adherence, exercise, minimizing alcohol, smoking cessation, and cognitive engagement. So they created this score and they found out that compared to people who didn't adhere to any of these healthy lifestyle factors, those who adhered to two or three of them had 37% lower risk of developing dementia. But those who adhered to four or five of them, which means almost all of them, they reduce their risk of developing dementia by 60%. And this actually shows us that it's not an all or none phenomenon. You don't have to follow all of them. 
all the time. I mean, it would be great if you did, but small changes, making small stepwise changes also makes a huge difference and prevents dementia. Dean and I have been invited by several outlets, American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and we've published reviews on the importance of addressing lifestyle uh, when it comes to preventing dementia and specifically Alzheimer's disease and how this is the most urgent healthcare priority right now. And to that end, we came up with the NeuroPlan, which is an acronym and is for nutrition, E is for exercise, U is for unwind, R is for restorative sleep, and O is for optimizing cognitive activity, highlighting the important evidence-based uh, lifestyle factors that reduces the chances of developing um, dementia and specifically Alzheimer's disease. Let me just go ahead and give you a brief overview of why nutrition is important. Now, when we eat food three to four times a day, we actually create an internal environment and these nutrients can protect the brain from the normal wear and tear that causes oxidative stress damage and inflammatory changes. Scientists are focusing more on dietary patterns nowadays instead of specific foods and micronutrients because foods work in synergy together. And it's between that synergy and the pattern that your brain health is determined or your health in general is determined. What do we know so far as far as diet and prevention of Alzheimer's disease is concerned? Well, there have been some a dietary pattern such as the MIND diet, which stands for Mediterranean Diet and DASH Intervention for Neurodegenerative Delay. And when you look at the dietary pattern, it essentially focuses on plant-based foods like greens, beans, cruciferous vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, and reduction of foods that may be high in saturated fats such as red meat, cheeses, uh, dairy, high-fat dairy products, and of course, uh, refined carbohydrates, you know, things like white flour and sweets and uh, other sources of too much salt and too much sugar, like fast food and fried foods. The MIND diet has been studied extensively. Uh, one of the seminal papers that came from Rush University showed that when people adhere to a MIND dietary pattern, they reduce their risk of Alzheimer's disease by 53%. In a similar study, they found out that when people adhere to the MIND diet, not only were they able to prevent Alzheimer's disease, but even when they were at the beginnings of cognitive decline, there was substantial slowing during an average of almost five years. So they actually slowed down the progression of cognitive decline. Um, Mediterranean diet is a component of the MIND diet. And in this one particular study, they found out that people who adhered to the MIND or the Mediterranean diet, they showed less amyloid plaques, which is the bad protein that has been associated with Alzheimer's disease and their brain actually looked younger, up to 12 to 18 years younger. Um, now, there are specific food groups that have been vilified, for example, whole grains, but the evidence shows completely, you know, it shows as otherwise. When people eat whole grains, they actually have better brain health. In this particular study, which was a large study, followed people were followed for 12.6 years, about 3,000 of them. Highest intake of whole grains reduced the risk of dementia by up to 40%. And so eating things like breakfast cereals, dark bread, oatmeal, brown rice, bran, added germ, all of them reduce the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Popcorn didn't really end up in this list, and that's probably because people add a lot of butter and salt mm -hmm. to popcorn. Otherwise, it's such a wonderful whole grain. Um, I know I said that there are no superfoods, but there's one food that stands out in most studies, and those are green leafy vegetables. In one study, they actually found out that people who consumed one and a half servings of greens, which is about 
one or two cups of, uh, uh, you know, raw greens per day, they had lower risk of cognitive impairment and their brain was equivalent of being 11 years younger in age, which is phenomenal. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about what kind of fats people should consume for brain health. And you keep on hearing that because the brain is made out of fat, you should eat more fat. I mean, that's true. The brain is 60% fat. It's dry weight. But the kind of fats that are healthy are polyunsaturated fats. And these are the most abundant fats in the cell membranes and the connections of the brain. Uh, specifically, DHA is very important. And we've had multiple conversations about the importance of consuming DHA on a regular basis for better brain health. That is the only type of fat that the brain needs. The brain does not have the system to absorb saturated fats or trans fats or any other types of uh, cholesterol. And it makes enough cholesterol and saturated fats in the brain to help it function better. We don't need to consume it in our diet. And as a matter of fact, consumption of saturated fat has been associated with um, increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. In this particular study, uh, which was from the Chicago Health and Aging Project, um, people who consumed higher amounts of saturated fats and trans fatty acids had a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And this is essentially repeated in so many other um, uh, databases and cohorts as well. People who eat saturated fats that are derived from, say, red meat, high-fat dairy products like cheeses, um, have higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. But people who consume fats that are derived from plants, which are polyunsaturated fats, actually have a lower risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. This study showed, and this was the Kaiser Permanente, uh, Permanente Northern California group, they found out that when people had high cholesterol during their midlife, had a 57% higher yeah. risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And even if their cholesterol levels were kind of mediocre, their risk was 23% higher. So making sure that LDL is controlled well uh, is very important. We always hear about ketogenic diet, and we've had multiple conversations, separate conversations about uh, a thorough review of ketogenic diet. But briefly, there's really no evidence that shows us that when people consume a ketogenic diet, that it can prevent Alzheimer's disease or it can improve cognitive scores. The first randomized controlled trial of ketogenic diet that was conducted um, a, a few years ago did not show any statistically significant improvement in cognitive uh, scores. Supplements, are they important? Well, some of them are, specifically B vitamins and especially vitamin B12. Vitamin D is very important. So making sure that we keep- Especially an, if you're low. Exactly. Keep an eye on the levels and supplement when necessary. Uh, but for other micronutrients such as vitamin C, vitamin E, some minerals, it's, it's, show, it's seen that it's best to get them from food rather than supplementing them. And of, uh, of course, like we said earlier, omega-3 fatty acids, specifically DHA, is very important. And one can get that from diet. But our review showed that, especially during the two bookends of life for children and for uh, individuals who are over the age of 60, they may need to supplement it to a certain extent. And, you know, getting it from an algae-based omega-3 fatty acid is, is just phenomenal. But that needs to be done under the supervision of a doctor. And you need to speak with your physician to see if you're eligible to, to take that safely. Summary of what kind of dietary pattern matters for brain health. An unprocessed plant-based or at least a plant-predominant diet is very important for uh, prevention of uh, dementia. Adding polyunsaturated fats and reducing saturated fats should be a very important point. 
Um, consuming plant-based proteins that are derived from lentils, beans, and soy products are better than animal-based proteins that increase risk of Alzheimer's disease. Inclusion of complex carbohydrates are very important. Carbs are not bad, unfortunately. That's something that we keep on hearing. Complex carbohydrates are incredibly important. And as a matter of fact, glucose is the most important fuel for brain cells. Focusing on increasing fiber and omega-3 fatty acids is very, very important. Now, as far as exercise is concerned, I don't think there's anybody that's going to negate the importance of exercise. No, no. I mean, we're, we're not going to go into detail uh, for the rest of these sections, but it's critical to know that exercise is as important, if not more so, than nutrition. Absolutely. And we're beginning to uh, accept that more and more and more every day. And there are two types of exercises. Um, uh, we don't consider flexibility and balance as part of the main core exercises, although those are critically important. But exercises, aerobic and anaerobic or other terminology that can be used. One is to get the heart beating fast. So you can, you can get, get, create aerobic resilience and, and get the oxygen into the cells and into the heart and into the brain. And the other one is anaerobic or weight bearing uh, or muscle building exercises. And there are different ways you can do that, but both of them are critical. <clears throat> Start a regimen as soon as possible, create a checklist. We'll be working with you on this, uh, this, this, uh, for us. actually we've started that already and we'll be doing this with you on a weekly basis because we think ex without exercise, there really can't be health. So true. Now I know that some of us, uh, are limited in one way or another. We can always try to work around the limitations, be it the, the inability to walk or inability to move upper extremity. Uh, we can definitely create a program, uh, for, for everybody around exercise because it builds the brain. Well, One of the few things that actually grows the brain is exercise. Absolutely. We're actually starting a challenge in uh, the NeuroAcademy community for steps. So uh, stay tuned for that. We will launch that very, very soon. Yes. Um, resistance training, like you talked about, has been shown to reverse signs of uh, mild cognitive impairment. And people who did resistance training actually uh, improved their, their cognitive scores significantly. I mean, this is a, uh, a comparison study against controls, meaning that even with those similar kind of background, MCI, who had the, the controls versus the intervention, the intervention was 47% better than the controls. So they amazing. were able to reverse it, which is just remarkable data. Absolutely. Uh, framing Hum Longitudinal Study showed that, that just a brisk walk reduced the risk of Alzheimer's disease by 40%, which is probably one of the most empowering messages ever. Correct. All right. How do we deal with stress, Dean? So now we did nutrition and exercise, and now it's time for us to talk about unwind or stress management. For us, this is such an important concept, and that's why we have a couple of courses uh, with, with how, how Dr. Howard Jacobson and myself. And we continue having uh, sessions around this because it's a tough subject to manage because it's not about just stress. It's about good stress and bad stress. This incredible brain is actually designed to be challenged and pushed. In fact, it wants to be pushed around its purpose. Uh, the blunt purpose is survival, but the specific purpose of every individual is around what brings them joy and meaning. And that's the clue to good stress. You need good stress in your brain. Otherwise, the brain does not want to spend 25% of its energy on meaningless things and it will shrink, and especially as we get older. There's not much that affects shrinkage of the brain more so than a brain that stays idle, that does not do anything or does things that are not and align with their purpose and joy. So 
that's basically the idea between good stress and bad stress. Bad stress is driven by activities, behaviors, and, and emotions that are not driven by your purpose, doesn't have clear directions, doesn't have clear timelines, and it creates this low-grade baseline sympathetic overdrive, hypercortisol levels that over time shrinks the brain and damages the brain, including the vascular aspects. And good stress on the other side makes those connections that we we're talking about. 30 to 50,000 connections cannot be had without being challenged around your purpose. If you just sit around and watch TV, your brain doesn't not, doesn't not only not make connections, that's a difficult, a, a triple negative, but actually then withdraws this call. There's a process called Wallerian degeneration where the connections pull back and die back mm -hmm. and your brain shrinks. So you have to find purpose. One of the uh, many courses that we'll be starting uh, fairly soon, probably in a few months, is how to find your purpose, which is harder to, to, for people than, than you would think. Very true. We have this conversation with our kids every, every weekend. Yes. Finding purpose and purposes to build around the, uh, and build your brain is critical. Absolutely. So how you respond to stress matters as well, the perspective and changing that. And that truly links <clears throat> to your purpose and your goal in life, which uh, essentially um, structures the language that you carry to respond to stressful uh, uh, moments, changing it from one of a negative language to a positive language to help you not only reach your goals, but also enjoy the journey. Now, this is not like the Saturday Night Live standing in front of the mirror, giving yourself positive affirmations, but in a way it is. The language you carry is the, um, is the limbic baseline. Limbic baseline is what determines your endocrine system, what determines your through hypothalamus, yes. uh, what, what hormones are released through the pituitary. So the language you carry is important. At some point, fairly soon, with the lead from your community, we're going to start a positive um, affirmation, positive language, positive perspective um, uh, thread where everybody every day shares something positive. Oh, I love and, that and that so really will have po uh, incredible effect on the general community, uh, especially if it's meaningful, it's not just trite uh, and it's personal and it's owned by people. I think that's a critical thing, especially if you take a, a, a complex, challenging situation and flip it by bringing positive language that has meaning for others. So give us ideas, take the lead. We want to stay, start that language because there are a lot of things you don't have control over. Yeah. There's yeah. no way you can create a purpose for certain things. There's no way you can control the timeline for certain things. What matters then is the language we carry. 100%. Wonderful. Mindfulness and meditation are also very important uh, aspects of stress management. And people who have control over uh, any moment by being mindful and perhaps meditating in their own way can increase neuronal connections, increase their hippocampal size, increase their gray matter density over a long period of time. So this also is an amazing opportunity and a technique for people to take care of their brain health. And hopefully we will have meditation sessions very soon. So um, Aisha has these sessions in the car and in, uh, in the most unusual place, which I love because it should be a lived concept. It shouldn't be a little ashram that you've created in the, in your garage or in a, in a, in a, in an unusual place. It should be everywhere and it should be everywhere, not in a physical sense, in an intrinsic sense, meaning that feeling that you've created, that you've owned, that you've, that you've uh, become aware of and uh, about that calmness that you've, you've gotten access to 
then should be translated to every behavior, including now, as you're listening to us, how do you bring this you know, system down, yet attention up? Yeah. How do you bring the heart rate down, the breathing under your control, yet the focus is higher level and higher level to the point of super consciousness. This is not you know, soft science. This is literally the whole purpose of mindful breathing, mindful um, methodology and meditation. Absolutely. Right. Sleep is incredibly important. Um, as adults, we go through four to five cycles of sleep where we reach the deeper stages. And those are very important stages for the brain to do two very important things. The first thing that happens during that deep sleep is the brain cleanses itself. We have a dedicated genitorial system called the glymphatic system that essentially gets activated only when you go through that deeper stage. Anything that disrupts that deeper stage does not activate that genitorial system. And so your brain has accumulation of debris around it. And it's remarkable because the brain actually shrinks. Yes. It's such a fascinating system. The brain shrinks and allows for this fluid, the glymphatic system and the microglia, the, the janitor cells to get activated and do their job very well. The second thing that happens is your memory gets consolidated and organized during these deeper stages of sleep. So, you know, the, the, the analogy that we give is that the memory goes into the right file folder and cabinet and it's easier for you to identify it the next day. And that doesn't happen. Our memories get disorganized or stay disorganized if we don't reach the deeper stages of sleep. Sleep hygiene is an enormous topic, and we actually have spoken about that in the NeuroPlant course and several of our conversations during our live sessions. But the most important things or aspects of sleep hygiene are environmental factors, which include sound, light, and temperature, nutrition, and cognitive behavioral therapy. It's very important for us to identify any sleep disorders like sleep apnea or restless leg syndrome. Uh, to make sure that we don't live with these pathologies for a long period of time that slowly and gradually literally shrinks the brain. Uh, one thing on from a personal perspective, I've noticed that when I travel, the thing that bothers me the most is pillow. Yes. For me, the pillow is critical. So I actually, it doesn't, we actually take the pillow with us. It almost, you know, it, it kind of seems funny with this, you know, incredible professor carrying his own pillow everywhere he goes. And we have a small bag for his pillow, but it is such an important. It has saved our, my my life. It has saved his 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 energy levels the next day. He cannot sleep on any pillow that are in hotels, and you know it makes a huge difference for him. But yes, we, so figure out your idiosyncrasies and and build a sleep hygiene sleep spa around those. Yeah, the kids used to make fun of him carrying his pillow everywhere, but not anymore. After we see the benefit of they it, they find other things to make fun of. All right. Optimizing cognitive activity. Cognitive activity, optimizing cognitive activity and social activity for that matter is about that positive stress, pushing the brain, create an environment that pushes your brain and environment that you like. And usually the environments that you like are the things that, that have meaning for you. Even if it's a game, you know, chess or playing musical instruments, um, learning to dance, we're actually doing all of those. Yeah. Uh, some of us worse than others, that would be me. Uh, but but it doesn't matter. It's about finding those things that really challenge you and have um, make those connections. And those matter. We truly believe that one of the variables that actually makes certain populations uh, more vulnerable is the level of brain challenge, yes. especially when they were younger. 
uh, we, we definitely know that certain population do very well because they even started courses and classes later in life. Yes. And you see the awakening of the brain or certain parts of the brain, which is just remarkable. So if there's anything I want you guys to do is nobody in this community should be without a task, a purpose, a meaningful activity that really challenges their brain several hours a day. Mm -hmm. if, if it's just um, background noise, if it's just a mindless watching of TV for hours at a time, you are damaging your brain as much as if you were eating a, a fatty, um, you know, um, a food that, that was uh, full of trans fats and, and uh, um, um, sugar and everything else. Don't leave your brain be dormant for hours at a time. Work around things that you enjoy, but really, really purposefully push your brain. That both it gives you meaning in life, also it grows your brain. Absolutely. We have several studies that have shown us that when people um, push themselves to memorize and to do complex thinking, their brain grows. We have the London taxi and bus driver study mm -hmm. where they actually built larger hippocampi or the, uh, the, you know, the parts of the brain that are responsible for memory, nuns study that essentially showed us that nuns who had high linguistic abilities and were more socially active actually did not show any signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's disease despite having the amyloid proteins and the lesions in the brain after they passed away and their brains were autopsied. So um, it, it comes down to complexity, purpose, and challenge. And, and by the way, this is actually positive stress. This is what reduces your negative stress that you know, there's only so much attention space in your mind. So if it's built around positive stress and purpose and meaning and complexity and pushing your brain, there's very little room left for negativity and, 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 and negative stress, although it's not eliminated, but it, it reduces that likelihood. And also it's important to know that you can't create a healthy, a change in your diet. You change in your exercise patterns, a change in your sleep pattern, especially sleep if you don't develop positive stress. And this, you know, uh, the interface of these three variables, you can build an incredibly positive, uh, growing brain, but also give your brain capacity to adapt for nutrition, exercise, and everything else as well. Amazing. So that was basically it. That was the conversation and the slides. And uh, I'm smiling because I'm reading our lovely community members' messages and Cassandra says, I listened to you about this in August 2021 and changed my life. That's incredible. Bijan says, are you, are you trying to say that I should become a part-time London black cab driver? <laughs> if you enjoy, you know, everywhere we go, we, we get either Ubers or taxis and you should come in our car. I mean, we don't leave a second with, with this poor drivers. They're like, immediately we start talking. Or use the translator, which is, uh, I, I use it in very creative ways. It's always picking on the family, but uh, joking around. But um, it's remarkable lives, remarkable people. But whatever it takes to challenge you that, that you enjoy, yeah. it's, it's, it, that's where brain health is, is created. I want to bring, back, uh, bring us back because I, I, I got a lot of uh, feedback from the community on the statement. You brought the example of watching TV. So... Um, you know, I think from statistics, um, we've seen that when people retire, they tend to lead, most of them tend to lead sedentary lives a lot. I mean, at least that's what I see in my patient population. For, you know, half of the day, they're either sitting on their couch or watching TV, which can be pretty devastating for brain health, can't it? Yes, absolutely. Both. Uh, so I, I actually have two kinds of sed a cognitive sedentary life and physical sedentary life. Mm -hmm. And if you 
you have both, it's absolute devastation. The group that had the greatest decline in brain capacity were those that were active in life and then they didn't do anything when they retired or significantly reduced their activity levels. They had the greatest shrinkage and greatest path, fastest path to dementia. Yeah. So challenge your brain. Yeah. And um, Natalie's saying, so Netflix is killing our brains? So here's the thing, though. A lot of my patients, they don't do much and they've always watched TV. So I actually uh, start a process and I've done this with many patients. Yes. You know this. Yes. <laughs> I asked them to watch a show What the idea of recalling details afterwards mm. or talking about it afterwards. A lot of times we watch the TV show and then we're done. But if you have a partner or even if you don't have a partner, uh, you, you want to get, get on a phone with a friend or a family member, <laughs> sorry about that, and have a conversation about that show, guess what? That's as much challenge as anything else. It's like taking a course. Well, let's not be yeah, uh, elitist. Um, if you're watching Game of Thrones or, or, or something of that nature, and then you're speaking about it with somebody else, they're recalling the details and talking about the concepts. And that's a challenge. Mm. It doesn't have to be anything. You don't have to solve the problem of the double slit uh, experiment of Heisinger's uncertainty principle because nobody has. Uh, uh, it's so funny that everybody now is all of a sudden become a physicist. Uh, everywhere we travel, they're tr explaining everything toward qu with quantum entanglement. It's like, why does this food taste bad? Because quantum entanglement. You don't have to solve quantum entanglement, but it's about thinking. Yeah, no. It's literally about recalling, thinking, enjoying, having conversations. So mm -hmm. pick a show with a friend. You could be far apart, watch it, and then have a conversation with them. But with detail, push it, push it deeper, you know, uh, into the memory uh, to draw the characters and also into the concept yeah. to draw the frontal lobe into this conversation. One of the things we used to, we did a long time ago was with your sister and your brother-in-law, my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law. So, you know, we, we missed each other. I think it was during the pandemic and we missed each other and we hadn't seen each other for a long time. So we would, uh, we would uh, choose a show on Netflix. We would watch it. And then we would have a Zoom meeting to talk and discuss the details. It would either be a documentary or it would be a psychological thriller. And then we would go into the history and one of us would actually do some detail on the uh, on the figures. It, it, would, it would be such a cool, fantastic idea of just digging deeper and learning more about the aspects of that show. And, and even in this community, if there's a TV show, let's not make it too controversial or too sexy or anything of that nature or uh, Although I don't see anything majorly wrong with that, but, but it, it, you know, start a group and, and have a conversation about that concept or a documentary. I mean, um, um, we, we have a Food 2.0 coming out, which we're part of and, and others uh, just have conversations around that. And that's as much cognitive activity as anything else you could be doing. Absolutely. Cassandra says that's what we did with the Barbie movie. That's phenomenal. Yes, absolutely. Kate yes. says, I love Star Trek, but maybe I should give it up and learn to speak, speak Klingon. <laughs> yes. We actually have had so many discussions about the Star Trek show and about its implication, historical and psychological implications. That was one show that, you know, as a child, I would watch with my dad all the yes, time, the Star told, Trek. Yeah. And then growing up, we watched this movie series and, you know, some of the latest series. It was, it was, a, it was a great uh, piece of conversation uh, for, for our family. I love that idea. Yeah. So let's not be elitist about movies being bad. Yeah. It's how we use the thing in itself. Yeah, absolutely. Or well, the Klingon one, but that's funny. Yes. Good luck with that. I would, I would love to learn Klingon. Natalie says, 
So instead of mindless shows, make it a recall quiz for your partner after watching like our plant protein chapters. Yeah. So, but here's the thing. She's Don't, referring to the book club. That book we're, club, absolutely. Uh, but even when you're doing the, if you have a partner, you're reviewing a movie. Don't make it stressful. Yeah. Let each know. person do their own recall, their own interpretation, not a quiz of the other person because it becomes an anxiety provoking moment. It becomes negative. So it shouldn't be a test as opposed to spontaneous free recall, everybody at their own level, at their own space and with their own interpretation. So I really don't like the quizzing thing, mm. but spontaneous self, self-generated concepts, ideas, and recalls. Yeah, absolutely. Becky has an interesting question. She says, can sewing, quilting, and other crafts be good stress? Absolutely. Yes, it, it can be definitely good stress. But as far as cognitive activity, if the quilt is changing quite a bit all the time, yes. But if it's the same repetitive behavior over and over again, it might not be as challenging, but it might be meditative on the other side. Yes. Our friend Bijan says, so using the brain early in our lives makes no difference later if we don't keep it up? Uh, it does. The earlier you, st- let me be honest, the earlier you start, the more reserve you've built early on and the better you've kept your brain, the more protection you will have. But it doesn't mean that those that start later will cannot develop protection or cannot maintain cognitive reserve. Uh, it's just that the ones that started earlier just have a little bit of a head start. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, um, uh, let me just answer. Yeah, to, that, sure. to that point, I know people that were al- alcoholics who've had head traumas, but it didn't leave them significantly damaged, but they've had done that. And then at some point in life, later in life, they reversed their life course mm-hmm. and they did as well as anybody else because the brain gives you a chance. The brain has such resilience that it can regrow the connections. It can, it can uh, create the protection you need later on, later in life. Absolutely. Candide is here and, um, the message is, um, I've had trouble with sleep for over a year due to high stress levels and the doctor prescribed a medication because he said it wouldn't be as damaging for, uh, for my brain. I have the APOE4 gene. Your thoughts? This is complex because we have to know what, this, what is the, uh, the nature of, of the stress, what's the nature of the uh, sleep problem. What was the nature of the medication? Right. right. Well, all of those things. So uh, the, the short answer is we're not against medication, especially uh, for stress or sleep or other things for short term. But alternative psychological and environmental factors should be instituted so that over time that takes over. Yeah. There literally is very little drug that we are supportive of long term. Mm. Um, unless somebody has to take it because there's no other alternative. Many of the conditions can be affected short-term through medication, but also can be reversed later on over time through lifestyle. Absolutely. Um, uh, Sandra says, many people read before bed on some type of screen, iPad, etc. What about the light exposure? So that can definitely be a, a problem. And... Um, I mean, there are there are now screens that essentially either reverse that light, you know, where reverse only, polarization, yeah, where, where only the letters are highlighted and the background is black, where you have some covers to reduce the blue light. But yes, we do have evidence that the blue light can disrupt sleep and essentially send messages to the brain that uh, it confuses the circadian rhythm. It, the brain does not have the capacity to know whether it's daytime or nighttime. And so it's very important for people to have those kind of covers or measures to reduce reduce exposure to blue light. 
Um, Bijan says, I'm surprised that you said that people who use their brains more earlier in life can lose it faster if they do not continue using it later. No, no, no. I, I wasn't saying that they can lose faster. Um, uh, uh, people who've been challenged. Yeah. So in a way, yeah. So people who've challenged their brain significantly and then they stop using their brain. They, they, in that one study, they showed that their decline was pretty steep, very, very steep. So what does that say? That means that that brain is used to getting pushed. Mm. It means that brain is using a lot of glucose for most of the life. And there seems to be almost like, a, of course, there's no consciousness uh, about the brain with, uh, internally, but there is an awareness or a sy system that tells the brain, my gosh, my brain is not using as much, probably a feedback mechanism, yes. is not using as much glucose. So therefore, I don't need to use all of these connections and it will draw some of the connections. So that's the particular study that showed that. What we should get out of that study, remember, we don't make a whole lot out of one study, but uh, is that challenge your brain, especially if you've challenged your brain all your life, start challenging your brain even when you retire. And for those who haven't challenged the brain, guess what? Challenge your brain uh, later in life. Maybe your methodology will be different because you don't have the things that you've had passion for all your life. Now build that passion or that system around things that you do. Everybody, like, that's why I brought the example of watching TV. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Kate says, Dean and Aisha, you have taught me to love my brain. I love hearing yes. that. That's great. I'm going to take some of the question and answer. Somebody asked about page. my teddy bear. Oh, somebody said, your teddy bear? Yeah, does Dean take his teddy bear as well? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the question is, do you take your teddy bear? Where do you keep your teddy bear? Well, I, my teddy bear is hope. And if I could take oh. hope, I would take hope everywhere uh, and we'll be taking hope and chewy a lot of places but that oh we missed hope so much oh my goodness. so it's uh, hard traveling uh, without yeah. hope and oh, chewy i wouldn't call them teddy bear because they're like family so uh yes uh, yeah. we missed hope a great deal if you add hope in your hand that's better than a teddy bear she is like very fluffy and, oh, and my soft goodness, she's, yes. she's a teddy bear um, interesting uh, comment by Janet. She says, a friend of mine always brings a fan to help her sleep, which is great because I think because the white noise and also the temperature. Exactly. Those are two very important things that that get affected um, during sleep. Okay. Shall we answer some of the questions yes, on the homepage? Yes. So Debbie says, I have a question about learning a foreign language. For nine months, I have been using the app Duolingo to learn German. I use it almost every day for five to 15 minutes. My question, am I growing my brain if the best I can do so far is to have some words fully memorized, but more so rely on seeing the words in order to understand their meaning and order for writing and speaking? In other words, if I had to take a test, I would fail if I could not see the words to make my choices. I guess I'm also looking for an explanation as to how the brain learns a foreign language and if I need to put more effort in or I can continue to plug along knowing something is better than nothing. First of all, it's, uh, I can guarantee you that you're actually building your brain significantly. Whether the fact that your efforts have not emerged into what you would perceive as a significant linguistic uh, capacity is, 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 is not reflective of what's happening underneath. There's, there's a point of emergence where all of a sudden, uh, what you've learned as far as words, what you can read, all of a sudden comes to the surface and all of your, you, you recognize things a lot better. So there's an emergence that happens for most. For some people, it's a little more linear. For, uh, for others, there's an emergence. Then also that emergence depends on what age you've started to learn this language. Um, so don't be worried 
you're 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 building your brain capacity underneath is probably much more so what's than what's reflected as far as output is concerned and and how you'll all of a sudden man, you know truly exhibit your linguistic capacity is not linear there will be emergences or per- periods where all of a sudden you have a greater awareness of things around you when it comes to german is concerned so i would say uh, continue what you're doing your 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 brain is really appreciating it Absolutely. Claudia uh, uh, asked a question. Um, she says, my question is about APOE4 and your omega index. If your omega index is low, should you increase your omega-3 intake even if you don't know your APOE4 status? If you are taking a standard dose of omega-3, but your index is low, can you extrapolate that you are very likely uh, to have at least one APOE4 gene? No, you can't extrapolate uh, the APOE4 status from, because there are so many other variables, uh, your omega-6 uh, mechanism in your body. If, if you're not taking any uh, processed foods, um, how your enzymes are uh, uh, behaving, other enzymes. So you can't extrapolate from your uh, index to your APOE4 status. And whether you should increase your APOE4 because it's, uh, sorry, uh, your uh, omega-3, um, it, it, it depends on how low it is. And also, you should do it definitely under supervision of a physician. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's the short answer. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you for that. Uh, our friend Magda, um, she says, a short question about soy consumption. Um, does it block estrogen and does it impact hormone replacement therapy? So, um, soy, soy does not act the same way that, you know, estrogen blockers do. Um, and the receptors in the human body are essentially different and you know soy uh, essentially has phytoestrogen it's an estrogen type that is found in plants uh, they may block some estrogen um, uh, receptors but they don't act uh, like estrogen so you actually don't have the effects of estrogen when people eat a lot of soy there's a lot of misinformation about this some people think that then when they consume a lot of soy products they actually have feminization. Men say that they start becoming, you know, uh, that they have increased memory, uh, get glands and gynecomastia, uh, or, you know, the testosterone levels going down. That is all not true at all. The kind mm-hmm. of estrogen that soy products have is phytoestrogen. As a matter of fact, they reduce the risk of cancer, breast cancer and colon cancer and prostate cancer. And it does not affect hormone replacement therapy in any way, at least not with the, to the best of our knowledge today, we don't think it does. It's a very healthy form of a plant-based protein, and it actually has been associated with better brain health and better cardiovascular health as well. Beautiful. All right. Bijan says, my father has had blood tests resulting, uh, and, and the results indicate uh, he has low vitamin B12. What is the best way to get that uh, back to normal levels? Doctors have said perhaps an injection, but my dad prefers another method if possible. Usually doctors suggest injections if the vitamin B12 levels are incredibly low or if they have noted that the absorption um, has been affected significantly. There are specific uh, types of factors, intrinsic factors and acids in our gut that helps us absorb vitamin B12. And sometimes as we grow older, uh, we don't produce much of it. And so our body relies on exogenous, whether it's oral or injection. 
But if the doctor has mentioned injection, it probably may be related to absorption. Or the doctor is used to that kind of methodology. I'm not, not to put down the doctor, but uh, a lot of people just a method that they've used and then they just keep using it. Yeah. Uh, injection is for, as Aisha said, not to kind of double down on what you said, but no. it's, it's critical to, uh, to know that one of the things that we check also is methylmalonic acid, which is downstream product of, of uh, B12. So if the body has high B12, for example, and but methylmalonic acid levels are low, then it's not using properly. But it, injections are, are used in rare cases, basically. Mm. Suzanne has a very good question. She says, can you discuss post-operative cognitive dysfunction? So yes. the memory problems that people tend to have after a surgery. Uh, she says, I'm 61. Am I at risk for this? The surgery will last for two to three hours, and this worries me more than the surgery. That's a really good question, Suzanne. Incredible. Yeah, we, we, when you were at Cedar sinai we were uh, directors that are programming. Uh, we started a, a study with the cardiovascular people and orthopedic people uh, because there's some evidence that uh, people over the age of um, actually closer to 70 and above, especially women, have higher risk of uh, cognitive decline, especially if they've had cognitive decline to begin with. And more importantly, if they have surgeries that are longer. Yes. We're talking about four hours or more. Exactly. Uh, so, um, um, but in general, most everybody else does well, especially if they haven't had any significant cognitive decline. Um, um, so th that's where the data rests now. It has to be more personalized as well. Your own risk factors, um, if you've noticed any cognitive issues, if you're really worried, one of the things that we used to do is if somebody was worried, we did the baseline neuropsychological testing mm -hmm. that would give you an idea of where the risk is. Yes. And then from there, um, uh, make it actionable as far as where they want to go. Absolutely. Beautifully stated, Dean. Thank you. Natalie has a comment and a question about uh, Trader Joe's popcorn. Uh, she discovered a delicious bag of Trader Joe's popcorn, just olive oil and salt. I know exactly which brand you're talking about, Natalie. Is this okay? Um, yeah. When I eat it, so about... 500 milligrams of salt, but I have no processed food in my diet. So that's my daily intake. I guess the question is how much salt is okay in one meal? I don't think you should, there's any indication that you should distribute the salt in multiple different um, meals, especially if you have a healthy body and if you're not suffering from any kind of kidney failure or high blood pressure, or blood pressure issues or liver issues or anything that would get affected by, by you know, large quantities of salt. So I think you should worry too much about it. And you said that you have no processed foods in your diet, which is amazing. Um, I, I wouldn't worry about anything. So, but in general, we say to stay uh, in a day to less than 1,500 to, uh, uh, milligrams per day. Exactly. Um, on a daily basis, um, stay below one, 1,500 uh, milligrams. Added. And I think eating a bag of popcorn <laughs> that has 500 milligrams, I think you should be okay. Yes. Awesome. But Enjoy. did she say I eat a bag? She says, uh, yeah, she says she eats a bag of it. Are you concerned about that? The bad part. Which was? <laughs> it's delicious. I've actually had that. It's wonderful. Yeah. How big is the bag? Better, I don't know. How big is the bag, Natalie? Um, okay. Uh, yeah, and she has another question. Yeah. On supplement, I'm wondering if it is possible that some people react oppositely to certain things. I remember being a child and my friend's mother gave us Dramamine for a windy road car trip. She was asleep for three days and I was bouncing off the walls for the same time, unable to sleep. When I take 5-HTP or ashwagandha, I get wired. Well, it comes others. Could this be genetic? 
Um, response to medication. Response, yeah. It depends on medication, response to so many things. But what is Dramamine? Dramamine is almost like an antipsychotic medication. Uh, and, and, and yes, for some people, there's a paradoxical uh, re reaction, a uh, unique paradoxical reaction. And there, there are a lot of other drugs where there are paradoxical reactions uh, for the person. And part is genetic. And by genetic, we mean their metabolism and how their metabolism responds. Absolutely. Natalie says half a bag, Dean. Okay. So she has just half a bag of popcorn. Okay. <laughs> and that should be fine. It's not ca capital. Uh, you sounded like she was saying she was angry. No. No, she's not. I half a bag is great, Natalie. <laughs> awesome. Send the other half to us. Yes. Well, well, maybe we'll share it when we see each other. Okay. Uh, David Steele had a question. Um, I have a question regarding your recent uh, proton pump inhibitor podcast. We yes. did a proton pump yeah. inhibitor podcast recently. He says, I have been on Nexium for about three years. Last week, I had, I had my second endoscopy, and I still have six centimeters of Barrett's esophagus, as well as a hiatal hernia. And for those of you who don't know, Barrett's esophagus is change in the lining of the end of esophagus, you know, right where it connects to the stomach. And when people have Barrett's mm -hmm. esophagus, they need to be on medications to uh, stop it from changing into uh, cancerous. You know, al almost cancerous cells. And the doctor said that there were no changes and it's well controlled with the medicine, but it is recommended to be on the, medic on the medication for the rest of my life. I'm 55 because of the risk of it turning into cancer. I have a great diet, never experienced any heartburn. So based on the risk factors, it seems that I should continue with the medication to prevent it from turning into cancer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, but, absolutely. But keep an eye on your B12 level, keep an eye on your nutrients, make sure that because when you... Uh, yeah, uh, uh, take uh, keep an eye on all the nutrients and everything else to make sure that you're not B12, vitamin yes. D, uh, folate level deficient, and 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 be aware of those. Yes, things. That's exactly the, the the next part of his question, and he's asking if there are any supplements that uh, uh, should I be taking to uh, that could offset the cognitive decline that PPIs could be causing. I take a strong multivitamin. High in B12, D3, is there anything else? Any brain supplements? I do a lot of weight training, but I've heard that PPI can cause osteoporosis and bone issues. Should I be supplementing with calcium? I also heard not to supplement with calcium because it's bad for the heart. Sorry for the long question. No, no it's, it's not a beautiful, beautiful question. Beautiful, it's actually such a relevant question. Yes. Check all those levels. Mm -hmm. Check your calcium level, check B12 level, check folate level, check vitamin D level. Don't replace anything unless it needs it. Even if it's low, yes, replace it. Um, and, and then if you do that, you should be fine. Absolutely. And, yeah. and I think, I think you should <laughs> consider taking, um, you know, an algae based omega-3 fatty yes. acid DHA as well to, to make sure that you're covered as far as the polyunsaturated fats are concerned. Uh, okay. Elizabeth says, my question is about how to help my husband who has mild cognitive impairment. Are there activities we can do at home that would beneficial, that would be beneficial for his cognition? He doesn't like to play any games or do puzzles. We both read and we enjoy watching TV shows in the evening. Any suggestions? Yes, the answer is in the question. So uh, you, you enjoy reading books, read a book together and then discuss it. Don't pressure him. Don't ask him to recall. Make part of the process this conversation around the process. And try to see if you can, in the conversation, you can get him to draw uh, uh, some specifics recall things, recall ideas, and push the brain. Absolutely. Uh, with mild cognitive impairment, especially the amnestic type, um, uh, short-term memory is affected and visual-spatial is affected. Talking about things in three dimension, actually visualizing it also helps uh, those things. And with, them, uh, with movies and, and TV, same thing. 
pick one or two TV shows or one TV show a night where once you watch it, then afterwards you talk about details and talk about the concepts and enjoy and let him talk. Don't quiz him, but let him talk. And, but there should be an understanding that we're going to push ourselves and not just stay at the superficial level. Yeah. We're going to push ourselves deeper and deeper. Very true. Very true. Um, our dear friend Josie's here. Josie says, do you believe that AI will help us understand the neurologic basis for psychiatric issues? For example, will AI show us where, how, and why in the brain depression occurs? And if so, do you believe that it will be treated differently without so much trial and error? Yes and yes. Uh, so AI is, is, is artificial intelligence. It's not just AI, it's machine learning. And then along with that is tools. <clears throat> right now they have tools that they connect these little sensors into the brain and it's blunt, but fairly soon, very soon, actually, there will be sensors. In fact, that's what Sophie's area of research is. Our daughter. Uh, our daughter. Yeah. Uh, Brain-computer interface, <clears throat> where the sensors will be able to detect brain's activities uh, supertentorially above the bone. Uh, right now, they do it uh, very in detail uh, uh, during neurosurgery, where they put these, once they have the cap off, the bone off, they can put these leads into the brain. And then while the person is reading something or thinking about something, the electrical processes are uh, uh, interpreted by AI, right. and then, and and we should send the video to them. This is weird. This is, well, good weird for us. Then the person is asked That's to think it. something, yeah. and the machine now has learned uh, electrical activity pattern and tells the, the person what they just thought. Incredible. Um, so in the future, without surgery, we'll be able to have uh, electrical um, uh, devices that reads your mind. If you're feeling depressed, you're feeling anxious, it reads your particular patterns. It, it, then it also reads behaviors that you do that mitigate, reduce, allay those symptoms, and then, then can give you guidance to work you towards that. But that's what we would like. We have a brain uh, uh, initiative um, uh, uh, technology company that we're hoping to actually uh, foster around our, uh, Alex's AI and brain. Sophie is a bi biomedical engineering in brain and, and the two of us are working on this on how to get in this data to then help people improve their cognition, improve their memory, improve their moods instead of this blunt mechanism. And we're not even against the blunt mechanism like serotonergic drugs and SSRIs. It is best we have and they work to some extent, but it's very blunt mechanism. You're just throwing chemicals to bluntly affect the brain. And the antipsychotics basically just take away dopamine without any specific uh, specific addressing of the psychiatric uh, components. So the tools we have is very blunt. What if using AI as well as data capture mechanisms, we can get information that is incredibly finite and also affecting behaviors in incredibly finite and specific ways. And we're there now fairly soon, by, by the way. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. All right. Uh, Mary Lou has a question. Uh, my question is in reference to the study information shared on your reel about sedentary behavior and incident dementia. I'm 63 and I sit a lot of hours for my job. I work remotely from home. I try to get up as much as possible, but there are times I will sit for two to three hours without standing. I'm in good health overall, work out with weights and do yoga once a week. Um, as well as walking outside and treadmill as much as I can. Can you talk a little bit about this study? Explain a little bit more about METS uh, and any other suggestion, please. Thank you. 
so so METS is the uh, uh, it stands for metabolic equivalent of task, and one MET is the amount of energy used when you're sitting quietly. So her question is, uh, you know, what did that essentially say? So that study was published a couple of days ago, and it showed that when people were sedentary or they spend a total of X number of hours uh, sitting and not moving, they increase their risk of dementia. And there was almost a dose response relationship. Yeah. The more they sat, the more they were sedentary, the higher the risk of dementia. I guess Mary's uh, Mary Lou's question essentially is about: Do we take breaks when we are sedentary? Do we wake, or walk, or, uh, you know, stop that sedentary behavior and walk? Uh, is it the total number of sedentary behaviors that uh, that matters more than you know breaking it, uh, or how do we go about? It? To the best of our knowledge, breaking it is important. So it, it, what it, what that means that if you've been running for or walking briskly for an hour and then you sat eight hours in a row you almost negated the benefits. So break the sedentary behavior as much as possible. That's the critical factor. Why? Because when you're sitting for a long time, it's every system is affected adversely. Your, your metabolism is altered significantly for a protracted period of time, which means that the, the, the body might go into a negative state for long enough time where damage actually accumulates and and, and solidifies. Um, the blood flow to the brain is affected significantly because, um, because uh, the legs are the biggest pump in the body, not the heart, the, the legs. So if you're not moving for long hours, you're actually not pumping blood to the rest of the body, to the brain. Sure. Uh, and, and you know that, that that's one of the reasons why when people fly, they get DVTs, which is deep venous thrombosis, which is clots in the legs. Um, and that could be five hours of sitting in an airplane and people get DVTs. It's a very common thing. So break it up. Don't sit in one place for two hours in a row, three hours in a row. Get up, stand, walk in your place, step in place, do little squats, whatever you need to do to move. That's the key. Yeah. Um, and because it affects every system, as I stated. Lynn mentions that her Apple Watch reminds her to stand up every hour. So that could actually be a really good uh, reminder if you can afford one, you know, having those tools that remind you a standing desk would be amazing, especially for people who work from home. Well, yeah. And we here, actually, that's so funny that you brought this up there. We're actually thinking about it because we have one walking treadmill. We want to get two walking treadmills to be an example here for you guys where we do things and especially during the Q&A. Yeah. It's going to be pretty challenging during the cooking sessions, though. We won't. Yeah. I move around plenty. Yeah, you plenty during the, yeah. yes. But, but during the Q&As, we might be doing that uh, from here. Sure. Absolutely. And then we have our dear friend Dora's question. Uh, Dora says, nutrition question. You might think this strange, but I prefer to eat my corn on the cob raw versus cooked. I mean, if it's a good corn, why not? Yeah. I've, I just removed the husk, rinse and eat raw right off the cob. I discovered I like cor corn cold. I can't say corn cold. Yes. When I cook, when I cook corn on the cob and put leftovers in the fridge and ate it cold the next day, then I discovered it tasted even sweeter if I didn't cook it at all. Due to its sweetness, I thought I would compare the glycemic index of raw versus cooked <clears throat> corn on the cob, and I was surprised to find that raw corn on the cob had a lower glycemic index, 35 versus 52. Any idea why? Are there any cons to eating raw corn on the cob in terms of nutrients? I make sure to chew it well before swallowing. Um... I guess the glycemic index of any food changes when you cook them. 
uh, uh, during the process of cooking, um, certain fibers, the tough fibers actually become softer. And so the complex carbohydrates are easier to absorb. And that happens for potatoes as well, sweet and, potatoes. Yeah, and the complex carbohydrates, which would otherwise just go through, yes. are actually broken down so that you'll have more access to glucose yeah. or, the, or, or or disaccharides for that matter. That's the, that's the only thing that makes sense in all of this. Um, any cause of eating raw corn on the cup? No, I don't think so, I think. Um, and one thing that I would, and I think we've had this conversation before, Dora, and you know this, but I, I wanted to say it out loud because this is going to be recorded and you're, we're going to be, you know, posting it as a podcast too. This idea of glycemic index right after eating something affecting our ultimate yeah. health, there's no solid good evidence for that. It's very normal for our glucose levels to rise right after eating. Um, and it gently falls. And the whole body has a dedicated system to reduce the glucose, not necessarily get rid of it, but um, for the cells to open up their quote unquote doors for that glucose to be taken in and used as fuel. So, um, you know, having a higher glycemic index um, for a food that is generally unprocessed and healthy should not negate it from our dietary pattern. So we shouldn't worry too much about it. That's another whole big concept, and we're actually creating a podcast and a reel about this idea of why people should wear glucose monitors and eat foods that don't raise their glucose. It doesn't really make any sense. If you're a healthy person, if you don't have diabetes or prediabetes, the physiological rise in glucose right after consumption of food is very normal. More to come on that. More to come on that. Okay. Well, um, uh, Natalie says, my grand used to complain that she didn't have a bathroom on the main floor at 99. I finally got, got her a stair lifter, but I swear her peeing all the time kept her young. It was her favorite argument. Yeah. Yes, movement is very important. Movement and people critical. are actually recommending standing desk as well. Yeah. Well, but even when you're standing, do some squats, do when you move around. So I it, think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's such an easy thing. It's such a, the, the, the return on movement is profound and exponential. So true. So true. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're going to be respectful of the time and let you all go. Uh, we look forward to seeing you all uh, for the cooking session on Friday. We'll we'll have a live cooking session then. We also have our book cl uh, club discussion uh, tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow. tomorrow. Um, so for those of you who have uh, taken the quizzes and read the chapters, please join us. You'll find a lot of information in the book club section of NeuroAcademy. Uh, take a look at that and get ready to join all of us uh, for that wonderful discussion. It was so much fun hanging out with you all. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you all very soon. Thank Lots you. Lots of love. Bye.